Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running international and yet understudied scene. Welcome back to Lingua Britannica with me, Jess Crook, and my co-host, Wes Robertson. Hello. Today we're recording what we might call a second pair part to our previous episode with the Jochwin by speaking with Austin Lund of Panopticon. For any listeners who might not know, we're especially inspired to record this episode to pay homage to their split LP released in 2020 and to investigate two takes on folk and black metal music that we perhaps haven't heard before. So to get us started with Panopticon's perspective, we wanted to ask Austin to first introduce Panopticon's music to listeners who may not have heard it yet. Would you mind, Austin? Sure. Um, so when Panopticon first started in 2007, I had been playing in like some kind of black and death type bands and had been playing in a bunch of like crusty punk, like DB type stuff and things like that. Um, and I was always, you know, I was a huge black metal fan, but I you know, obviously didn't want to do it the way that it's done in Europe because I'm not European. It inspires me and I find fascinating. So I would kind of um, borrow some of that from time to time, but I wanted to mix my own perspective into it, my own instrumentation, uh, my own interests, the things that I like. And I like, you know, American folk, Americana music. Um, I like, you know, um, atmospheric music, um, you know, kind of shoegazy stuff and mid nineties emo and bands like sunny day real estate and stuff like that. And then I also like the most extreme black metal, death metal and, and crossed and, and grind and things like that. You know, my interest in music is very, very wide. And so I just kind of wanted a place where I could blend all those things together unapologetically. And, um, that's how it started. So, and it started when I was, 23 and i am 39 now so it's it's been quite a long time at this point so so yeah. lots of changes as i've changed as a person obviously mm. your band's broadly been described uh as folk metal at times like uh, encyclopedia metallic uh, metallum calls it atmospheric black slash folk metal is that a description that you align with or are you not a fan of that term I, I think that that's a completely fair assessment um, because it's not black metal per se. Like, you know, it doesn't sound like, you know, Street or, you know, in the night side eclipse era emperor or, mm. you know, stuff, but it does sound like, like, like their album, um, mm-hmm. sounds a lot like that. Or it sounds like Vindir, like their album on tour. Um, there's a lot of that kind of feeling, you know, this kind of folky sound, but, instead of just being like, hey, let's pretend to be Vikings, I was like, 
here's the music that I grew up with and the, the, the music that reminds me of home, which is this kind of Americana folky, mm-hmm. you know, tradition, some, even some traditional music. Um, so I felt like it was totally fair to say folk metal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, when people hear folk metal, they think like, you know, dancing pirates and yo-ho, <laughs> yep. old people so- with troll costumes and stuff. And that's not me at all. Like, mm. that's so I get the, I get the confusion there, but I don't know what else to, to call it. You know, so yeah. atmospheric yeah. folk networks. I mean, folk is a kind of a, a vague term because I mean, what folk means mm. is literally different depending on where you're standing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not as many, not as many pirates in the states. <laughs> no. 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 Not at all. So you said um, you also draw on traditional music. When you say traditional, what do you mean by that? Traditional Appalachian music, um, early Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the music that came over with Scotch Irish settlers uh, in in the South. Um, so a lot of that um, kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, a lot of that's present on Kentucky uh, with the Sarah Ogan Gunning songs and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing. Those those more traditional mining songs, and then a lot of my, a lot of my folk songs, like even like the Devil Walk the Woods, is meant to sound like early Appalachian music. Right. That's really interesting because uh, before the interview, we were talking a little bit about you know your history getting into like the punk scene first when you were a lot younger. Um, I was wondering, yeah, could you kind of. Um, Tell us like what the story is, like how, how these different like scenes and genres are connected in your experience. So, you know, punk, metal and folk and traditional Americana music. Um, the folk and Americana and country music was always around where I grew up, just everywhere. And blues, actually, because I lived in Memphis um, mm-hmm. when I was little. And I went back and forth between Memphis and Nashville. Um, quite often until I was, you know, starting to become a teenager, like a preteen. So there was just always around. It was something that I saw a lot. It was something that I listened to a lot. Um, usually not. And when I was young, it was not voluntarily. Um, <laughs> it, was just, it was just what it was, you know, but then as I got older, it became sentimental to me. You know, I mean, it was when my grandmother died, you know, the, the, the first thing that I wanted was her Patsy Cline LP, you know, um, you know, that kind of thing. These are the kind of things that as you get older, they become very synonymous with like who you are as a person. Um, when I was, when I was, a you know, a, you know, 11, 12, that kind of age, I mean, well, actually shit, before that, I guess I was maybe eight or nine when I got my first King's X record, my dad bought it for me. And, um, it was, uh, it was 1990. Uh, it was their album, Faith, Hope, Love. And it was like the first time I'd ever heard progressive rock and progressive metal and um you know that kind of progressive heavier music kind of blew my mind and uh from there i got into more and more progressive rock um you know bands like rush and dream theater and that kind of stuff you know there was a litany of bands that were in that genre especially bands that came out of houston i was really into all the bands that were in the kind of king's x scene uh, and they all had this specific sound of like 12 string bass and harmonized vocals and atypical rhythms and and song structure and that really made a huge impression on me and so you know here I was like 11 12 years old 
listening to all this really complex music. And that's how I learned how to play drums mm. was by playing drums to those albums, you know, like starting off as a little boy with pots and pans on the bed and banging on them and then working my way up to playing an actual drum set. And so the music that I cut my teeth on as a musician was this progressive stuff. Well, the natural backlash to that when you've been immersed in it so much is the first time that I heard Minor Threat or Dead Kennedys or Black Flag, I was like, holy shit, what is this? And it blew my mind, this like aggression and anger, you know, and like, obviously, you know, I had heard lots of metal up until that point, you know, everybody liked Metallica and Sepultura and all those bands back then. Um, a lot of those bands, my parents wouldn't let me have because it had swearing, in it, you know, yeah. And you gotta keep in mind, this is the South, Memphis, Tennessee. So, you know, my parents were church folk and so was I when I was little. Um, but as I became a teenager and I got into punk, you know, I kind of went back to metal and started alongside listening to punk, listening to classic thrash. And then that kind of led to grindcore and led to crust bands and the Memphis crust scene, bands like His Hero Was Dawn and all that stuff. So I started going to shows in like 1999. And, you know, I was in high school. And so, it, you know, I played in bands, really bad ones, you know, with my friends and stuff. None of them ever recorded until I was about 16 or 17. I started like being in bands like DB bands and, you know, punk, you know, punk and hardcore type stuff. And um, during that time period, it just kind of led me right back to metal again. And, you know, along the way, I would need a break from metal. So I would listen to like Godspeed You Black Emperor and stuff like that, and mono and, you know, and then I would get back into acoustic stuff and folk because it reminded me of my family, listening to Johnny Cash and all that. And so it all was just kind of the swirling pot of influences that I was always just kind of grabbing here and there and mixing it in. So that's kind of how it happened. When did black metal kind of join that equation? Suicide Nation. Um, before I heard Suicide Nation, I always thought that black metal was this kind of goofy thing because, um, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s in rural Tennessee, just outside of Memphis, um, you know, there wasn't really a lot of black metal. I mean, we had Epic of Unlight, but, you know, you had to, you had to be old enough to drive down into Memphis to go to the shows. You know, my parents moved out to the suburbs uh when i was in fourth grade and so i was out there and um so i didn't really you know i wasn't really part of any of that stuff until i got older and um i remember hearing you know bands like cradle of filth and demi Borgir and and like the, all that kind of stuff and i thought it was I, I didn't think it was for me it was too i thought that it was like the kind of you know the kids that wore like pantyhose on their arms and stuff and, mm -hmm. like the big the big huge baggy jeans and stuff Very familiar, i thought yeah. that was the kind of <laughs> i thought that was the music that those kids listened to and i didn't really identify with them you know because i was skateboarding and mountain biking and listening to you know punk records and stuff so i just kind of was like yeah this isn't my thing and then all of a sudden i found suicide nation and it was this like black metal sound but with this personal anger and intensive intense feeling and uh, I was like, oh, shit, this is this is black metal, you know, but black metal made by dudes like me. Mm. And so then all of a sudden I was like, well, I want to hear more of this sound. And so in 2000, I started just digging into 
2000, 2001, around that time, I just started digging into band. And one of the first proper black metal records I ever bought, I think the first I ever bought was in the Nightside Eclipse. And it blew my mind. It was the most magical thing. I remember like driving on a highway, listening to it. Like I dubbed a tape of the CD and I was just listening to it in my car and driving late at night. And I remember just not even paying attention to where I was driving anymore. I missed my exit. You know, I ended up like not even knowing where the hell I was because I got so lost in this record. And that was when I was like, I get this. I totally understand this music now. You know, and ever since then, it's just been this thing. I mean, I still love everything. I love death metal, huge into it. But black metal just has this magic to it that is hard to explain. When you were getting absorbed by it at the time and just in metal in general, um, was it all the music or did you pay any attention to the lyrics of those albums at all? Um, you know, strangely enough, as important as lyric writing is to me, um, I have an ability to kind of shut that off. If I don't like the lyrics to a band, if I think that their subject matter is corny or I just think that the lyrics are poorly written, I can just kind of ignore it. Um, because my primary focus has always been on music, um, it's easy for me to do that. Um, and especially with black metal, because unfortunately a lot of the time the lyrics are kind of, you know, not about things that I'm into. Like, I'm obviously not about Satan. You know, I'm a middle-aged dad mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm like kind of a, I'm like a, I'm like a cozy family guy that's, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm not going to be like, you know, hail Satan and shit, you know, that's just doesn't appeal to me at all. Um, but then, you know, on the other hand, there, there is, Americana and country songs that literally make me cry because I resonate with the lyrics and I understand the poetry so deeply. And there are bands that do that for me, um, but they, they're not like the classic, you know, the classic black metal bands, like the nineties mm. Norwegian bands. So a lot of those bands lyrically, I don't really resonate with them. Some of it is really well written, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's really beautiful, but it just doesn't really, you know, I'm not from I'm not from that country. I'm not from that community, and I'm also not uh, of the mindset of some shit. You know. Hmm. So, like, if you, I suppose, aren't really necessarily very connected to lyrics of other bands, like when you're consuming music, mm -hmm. do you ever experience? Um, I suppose, having a band's music ruined by lyrics then? Or is that just not happen if you can kind of turn off and ignore the lyrical content? It depends on the band and it depends mm -hmm. on how bad it is. Like there are some bands that I just can't handle listening to. You know, bands that are, you know, racist, like obscenely racist. Um, if I get wind of that, I just kind of got to tap out. And I'm just like, I can't fill my brain with that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I have zero tolerance for misogynistic uh, lyrics, lyrics that are anti-woman or advocate violence against women. Like a lot of the death metal bands that uh, get into that. There's a couple of bands that I listen to that have some gore themes and stuff. Like, you know, obviously Death mm -hmm. is one of my favorite all-time bands. And the early yes. Death has some pretty unsavory lyrics. But 
we have to take that in in you know in context of Chuck Schuldiner being like a 16 year old mm-hmm. sure. and you know if, if the lyrics I wrote when I was 16 year old when I was a 16 year old were out in the public I would <laughs> Oh, um, because they were horrible. They were just dumb, dumb as a bag of doorknobs. Um, so like I get that, you know, I, I see the I see this the subtlety in that and the nuance of it. Um, but there there are limitations. And I just can't, just can't do it. You know, once it starts marginalizing or singling out different groups and advocating violence against them. Uh, I just, I just don't want that populating my brain, you know? So I'm just like, nah, like I know David Allen Coe is supposedly a great songwriter. There's a lot of stuff that he said on some of his records that I've been shown and I don't listen to him because I just can't, you know, I don't care if he's a great singer. It's just like, I can't do it. So it's one of those things, you know? Are there inverse cases where um, accessing the lyrics has actually made you like a song even more? Absolutely multiple occasions where like I haven't really liked um a musician but their lyrical content has blown my mind you know mm. like I love for example I love Jason Isbell um but I'm not crazy about his voice um you know it's just not my interest but I think his songwriting is phenomenal and I think his lyrical devices are incredible um very vulnerable and very personal but they're very well crafted and so i love that about him even though i'm not really crazy about his his voice it's just i mean he's a great singer but it's just not my style Mm. so there's been a lot of cases like that especially in folk but in metal it's one of those things where it's like because of the you know the grim vocals and the Mm. death growls and stuff it's kind of easy to just tune that out but if the lyrics are cool, it's also not as evident because they're being screamed at you. Mm-hmm. So. So how did you then um, kind of come about deciding your own lyrical style? Because you have obviously, you know, the, the black metal influence, um, metal influence, but also the folk influence. And, you know, like until uh, your band, at least in my familiarity, there aren't really a lot of groups taking that kind of in the American context, imported black metal style and mixing it with the local, you know, Appalachian folk metal. There's a lot of different ways you could have taken that. How did you actually kind of figure out a direction when you first started sitting down and writing your own lyrics for your own music? Well, this is going to be a bit of an anticlimactic message. Answer. So I apologize in advance. Um, a lot of my lyrics were first pass. Okay. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I don't really, sometimes I don't really think about what I'm writing. I'm more writing from an emotional perspective. So music is very much a purge to me and uh, lyrical content is often a purge to me. I mean, I, a lot of the time I write my lyrics and there's not even music attached to it. It's just a journal that I carry in my bag that I write down. Like a lot of the lyrics to Kentucky, I was at the places that the songs are about. And I sat like at a, you know, uh, Bodies Under the Falls was was written sitting directly under Huahu Falls with a notebook. Like I was just sitting there writing it. I wrote uh, uh, Black Soot and, and Red Blood uh, on Blanton, Blanton State Park, Blanton County, 
like I was there sitting there riding in the woods, you know, climbing up a friggin' mountain um, and in Appalachian forests. And, um, you know, like Blue um, uh, Teeman was written um, in the in the Boundary Waters area, just out actually just outside of the Boundary Waters uh, in, in Ely, just, you know, just outside of Ely, uh, up, up on the Echo Trail. Um, and I was just sitting on a rock, um, like a huge boulder overlooking this, overlooking this, uh, lake. And I, and I wrote it all, uh, just kind of in one pass. And so that's kind of how it goes. So I'm not really thinking to myself, like, am I going to make this fit the, the style and the sound? It's mostly just like, how am I feeling at the moment right now? And what do I, what do I have to say? What's on my heart? what's on my mind. And then when it comes down to it, you know, when I'm recording vocals, I'll fix things here and there so that it fits in with the song. Um, or I'll add a verse if I need one, but it's often hard for me to add the verse because I'm kind of faking that inspiration. Mm. So it, it sometimes feels a little inauthentic and I get kind of about it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then with the folk stuff, the folk songs end up just being like, you know, little notes that I write to myself, you know, when I'm out for a run, you know, because I, I started trail running uh, over a year ago and I've written tons of stuff when I trail run is mm-hmm. I'll just like, you know, and I'm probably going to run off a cliff one day because I'm <laughs> typing on my phone, <laughs> freaking running, you know. <laughs> Um, but it's when you, when I give my brain time to clear itself, that's usually when all this, all the, all the stuff pops up. You're actually, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that this is quite a common process, but you're actually the first person we've talked to that writes lyrics without any part of a song to attach them to. Um, and so you mentioned that you'll sometimes edit the lyrics to fit, you know, what you need for the song. Do you ever build the song around the lyrics? Like say, okay, I have these lyrics, this song needs to fit this kind of structure. Absolutely. Hmm. I've absolutely done that. I mean, if, if, if Panopticon was a, if Panopticon was a car, (laughs) it would be, it would be held together with duct tape and Bondo because it's literally just like, it's this thing that I do because I need to do it. So every way that I could do something I have done, like I've literally recorded, I recorded an album where I recorded all the drums first had no riffs i just composed drums and then went back and wrote riffs to what i thought the drums sounded like and that album was social disservice okay Mm -hmm. and then i went back and i like grabbed lyrics from these places where i had written pieces and then i was like this one can fit here and i had like a riff bank that i had been for years just kind of like stuffing riffs in this open session Mm -hmm. and i wrote the drums you know, it was an experiment, obviously. I mean, it was totally intentional. I just wanted to see what it would be like to write an album backwards. And that's, you know, so I've totally done that before where I've, you know, written something and been like, oh man, I should turn this into a song. And a lot of the time that ends up being those kind of talking blues songs where it's where it's me after smoking too many cigarettes and drinking too much beer, <laughs> sounding like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, which... Since I quit smoking, I don't sound like that anymore. It was, <laughs> it was pretty bad, you know. I, but um, 
but yeah, I've totally done it that way, which it's, it's, it's fun. Based on our conversations with um, metal musicians, it seems like it's more common to have the music first and then write lyrics to fit the music. But Mm -hmm. um, in my conversations with other musicians who have written like folk and blues in the past, apparently the verse is more common. So what you were saying before about like writing lyrics and then writing the music afterwards to kind of fit with those lyrics Mm -hmm. is a more kind of folk blues approach. I was wondering if that was conscious for you, if you were trying to actually like reproduce that kind of folk um, blues approach rather than the more traditional like metal approach if you like where you have the music and then write the lyrics to fit you know i i would i wish that i could say yes to that <laughs> but i can't i i mean I, I that would be awesome if i could yes that was fits fits my uh my intent perfect you know but no not at all but i mean i never really thought about it like that because a lot of especially traditional folk music is kind mm-hmm. of written to convey a message and then, you know, they apply that message to a song and the song is usually simplistic chords. Mm. You know, it's the same chords of every song. I mean, if you even think about which side are you on and um, uh, come all you coal miners, mm. those two songs are very melodically similar, mm-hmm. you know, uh, except for the Pete Seeger version. Uh of which side are you on which has this like really haunting minor resolve to it i love it pete Seeger's version of that song's super good it's super haunting um but yeah i mean that i wish that that was the case but it's not it's usually just this kind of thing where just the lyrics the idea pops up mm-hmm. in my brain and then I, I i'd go oh damn i don't want to forget that and then i write it down and then the next thing i know i'm writing more verses because it's just kind of barfing out of me you know, I mean, there have been times like the wandering ghost from from scars. I wrote that in just one, like almost like a computer printer. I was sitting at my kitchen table with a bottle of bourbon. And I was I just moved to Minnesota and I was just really missing my friends and my family back in Kentucky. And I just literally just like my brain just puked that thing right out, which probably subconsciously had been swimming around in there. Mm hmm. I mean, the same thing happened with Beast Rider. I was at the brewery working one day and I was taking a break because I had a cycle going in the back, you know, like a caustic cycle on a tank. And I went up to the front and I grabbed a beer and I sat down at one of the tables and I just grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and I just wrote Beast Rider. Like it just came out. I was just like, oh. Hmm. That never changed anything. You know, it was just the weirdest. I mean, and what I think it is, is it probably just been swimming around in my brain and I'm such a space cadet that I didn't realize it, you know? So, you know, but, but yeah, I wish that, I wish that that was the case because that would be super cool. And I've never even connected those dots before you said it, Mm. but you're totally right. It is very similar, very similar process. Maybe it's subconscious in, in the back of your mind somewhere, <laughs> you know, like you said, swimming right, around in there. It's <laughs> like, I mean, I'm a total space cadet. And so it's, you know, that, that is, you, it's very likely that that's the case. So. <laughs> but maybe from now on, I'll just bullshit people and say it is intentional. Oh, shit, this is being recorded. You can cut that part out. <laughs> we'll okay. cut it out, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. The entire question train just gone. <laughs> We'll just cut it to yes. Yeah. That's that's how I do it. Yes, yes. Or just like even if we can't find it, get someone else, get our editor yeah. just to say yes and fuck it. <laughs> just interject someone else's yeah. voice going yes. Hello, I am Austin. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, that's really cool. I thought that that's really 
that's really neat to think about, you know, applying mm-hmm. um, folk methods to other music, even mm-hmm. if it's not folk, you know? Well, this so. kind of actually jumps to the question we're going to ask before we get into some of your lyrics more specifically, which is that, you know, traditionally a lot of discussions of metal, uh, especially kind of the gore stuff, has said that there's been like a, a distance, you know, it's not meant to be taken seriously. It's like a horror movie, whatever. Um, and that metal music lyrics therefore aren't very personal. Uh, but f- is that like an opinion that you've heard? And is it something, I'm guessing you'll say no, given what you've said so far, but is it something you agree with um, as, a, as a musician in the scene? I, I obviously don't agree with that for me. Mm-hmm. But I know that a lot of people, their lyrics are not personal expression of, of who they are. And I don't judge anybody based on that, you know, I mean, in a, in a lot of bands that I really love, you know, they, their lyrics are not, you know, super personal to them. And somebody, you know, some of the bands that I love just write about science, you know, and I think that's great. Um, in a lot of the bands that I like to listen to, you know, they write about the occult and all this kind of thing. And that's whatever that's for them. Um, but for me, I can't, you know, I was actually having this discussion with my brother-in-law yesterday. We went down to, uh, we had a beer event down in Chicago. Um, he and I run a brewery together um, mm-hmm. called Hammerheart Brewing. I mean, you, um, Wes, you you know about it, I know, because we talked yeah. about it. In, you know. um, but um, we were down there and we, you know, we have seven hours or whatever from, from uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, where we met up um, to talk about this. And we were talking about all these like kind of more occult bands that deal in kind of darkness and death and Satanism and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and how I, I listen to a lot of those bands, you know, um, but I also have met a lot of those people and they're not dark, evil mm-hmm. people. They're wonderful, you know, really great people. Some, many of them are friends, good friends. Um, and so what I got to thinking about was how for a lot of people, music is a place to put their negative feelings and their negative emotions, but it's also a place to kind of be who they are not Mm -hmm. and be who maybe who they wish they were Mm. or be who they would like to be in certain situations. And for me, music has never been that it's always been this thing where like I write about my thoughts, my feelings, and it very much mirrors for better or for worse. Um, who I am as a person, because I don't really know any other way to write except for, from my own perspective. And I've tried to like experiment with writing, you know, kind of things that are more like fantastic or things that are not, you know, um, reflective of who I am and I and it just feels it feels like putting on a costume for me mm. I can't I can't do that and it and and I don't I don't blame anybody who does I think it's great if people can exercise that part of their lives and it gives them some sort of some sort of thrill or makes them feel comforted you know or makes them feel confident in themselves that's great but for me it just doesn't work for me you know so you know so no, you know to answer your question your question you know it's kind of like I mean, it's kind of a non-answer, basically. I mean, it's like to each their own, you know, no judgment for me. Um, I do what I do. They do what they do. It's totally up to the writer to, to, you know, 
mm. right from their their heart. Mm. Yeah. Uh, definitely not an answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I know. I know a lot of my my answers here are kind of a little wishy washy. No, they're they're perfect, so, man. No, it's just nuance. Yeah. 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 We don't want this. Would be a very boring podcast if every answer was just yes, no. Just like straight and direct, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, none of my answers so far have been very dramatic or inflammatory. They're just kind of like, meh. Yeah. I, I said they've been dramatic. I don't know about inflammatory. I don't think we've had many inflammatory takes in the podcast. We've had some inflammatory yeah. discussions about whether or not you can use a thesaurus when you're writing. That's probably the biggest. Yes, that's, that's a debate. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, I knew some guys that used to do that. And like, it, it's okay to use a thesaurus if you can't find a word that rhymes with what you want to say. Mm-hmm. And I have agonized over that shit where I'm just like, oh, you know, just doesn't match what I want it, you know. And so mm-hmm. then next thing I know, I'm like Google searching another word for this. And, you know, yeah, but I usually find my way one, you know, one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the perfect transition point to talk more about your lyrics, mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, out of. Uh, all the artists we've spoken to so far, I think you're probably uh, the one that's had the longest uh, career to date. Uh, so while we want to focus on your current thinking about language and lyrics, we did um, want to begin by moving through the history of your lyricism a little bit. Uh, so starting with 2008's Self-Titled uh, and 2009's Collapse, um, one feature of the lyrics on these albums uh, that is distinct from your later releases is the direct reference to Scandinavian and or Viking folklore. Uh, so for instance, uh, the Lay of Grimnir retells the um, Norse uh, Grimnismal epic um and the song names um i'm gonna butcher this after ganger um and yes thank you (laughs) and merkstave merkstave um respectively reference norse undead and inverted runes um so what drew you to singing about norse mythos early on um i mean it's still in there throughout each record i mean there's like Mm -hmm. little bits here and there um, I mean, like on Roads to the North, there's lyrics in Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's just, it's always kind of been in there. Um, it, it's a personal interest and it's a personal uh, passion, especially like mythology or in Scan- Old Norse, um, Scandinavian mythology, those kinds of things. Like uh, I, I have a I have an interest in that, and I've done a lot of studying. Uh, read a lot about it um you know i have an interest in the the kind of pagan spirituality um obviously i don't take it super seriously um it's just like a it's very personal to me though um and it's kind of it's kind of there but not in a beat you over the head with it kind of way i've never made a big stink about it because in a lot of ways it's an interest of mine but i don't want to appropriate another culture mm-hmm. um because i'm an american and you know i mean i have <coughs> these northern european roots and stuff like but they're not i wasn't raised with those things and so like i don't really feel the need to make a big stink about it and you know dress up in viking garb and you know become a musical larper um but those things, you know, like I said, a lot of the lyrics often reflect my interests and reflect what I'm really excited about and what I find a lot of meaning in. And uh, uh, Grimness Small, and that, that 
that that specific um, story from the Ada um, really kind of applied with some of my views about greed and and uh, and kind of lust for money and lust for wealth. Uh, my views, my political views, uh, and my my economic views, and I felt like that kind of a cool way to kind of talk about how I feel about capitalism and how I feel about. Um, you know, our, our economic system here in America, but without like beating people over the head with rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Instead, mm-hmm. I used this story. So, and it was fun too. It was, it was a fun song to make, you know, for a 24 year old. <laughs> As Probably not what I would do today. <laughs> well, actually that's, that comment's perfect. Cause we did note that, you know, you absolutely do still have references to uh, Scandinavian, Norwegian lore, et cetera. Uh, the new album has a song called Nothis, which is uh, a rune, but we did notice that doesn't seem, you don't seem to have songs anymore that specifically retell myths or that reference myths like directly in the title. Is there a reason you kind of um, decided to move away from retelling stories, even if they thematically fit, an album uh as you've kind of progressed in your career well the the song that you're referencing is cedar skeletons mm-hmm. um which talks about talks it uses runes as a metaphor it talks about Nalthes uh and isa and it and it references them both and uh the the lyric talks about uh drought and and um and then also about the harshness of winter uh, mm-hmm. in Minnesota when everything kind of freezes. And so I use those runes kind of in tandem against each other. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I, I didn't really feel the need to continue on, you know, using uh, folklore in my lyrics because so many other and and done it better than I ever could. So it didn't make a lot of sense for me to just continue on rehashing these things that other people have said and said better than I can and more authentically than I can. So I just kind of moved on and continued on a, down my more personal path. Mm. Well, another thing that you mentioned that's like also a kind of clear change across time is that, um, you know, it's quite noticeable that in your earliest releases, um, there seems to be like more willingness to write um, quite straightforward and clear political messages. So your self-titled states that the concept of capitalism robs us of our very nature uh, and on the subject of morality. Um, you state that one nation's ethnocentric perception of God cannot be the only end. And on Kentucky, you rhyme... Um, I'm a coal miner's son. Um, I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sink this capitalist system uh, in the darkest pits of hell. So given that, uh, you know, metal has this history of lyrics, which are arguably often intentionally vague or obscure, particularly when it comes to their kind of political affiliation, was it difficult, especially when you started to, you know, state these opinions really directly in these early releases? Well, first of all, the the one from Kentucky, that was Sarah Ogan Gunning. And I just changed change the gender to reflect the singer. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, I'm a coal miner's wife. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable singing with somebody's wife. I thought that would be a little odd. Um, and so like, and, and like it was serendipitous that Sarah Ogan Gunning's song very much suited my agenda. 
mm-hmm. you know, just much like the lay of Grimnir suited my agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as for the the song off the self-titled album, I wrote those lyrics when I was 19. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, they're definitely a bit more bold and flowery and lack nuance uh, than, than I would write now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you know, because that song I wrote, I had written that song before I even started doing Panopticon. Okay. Mm. It, was, it was pulled out of a, it was pulled out of a journal that I wrote when I was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow. <laughs> um, and then repurposed and then I added some more lyrics to it after that. So I was either 19 or 20, quite young when I wrote that. Um, but yeah, I kind of felt like, um, lyrically, you know, my, my mom used to always tell me that you can catch a lot more flies with sugar than you can with vinegar. Mm. Mm. And, um, and I felt like a lot of my lyrics were a little bit too preachy and kind of bashing people over the head with my ideology. And I, I kind of felt like that was unnecessary. Mm. Um, you know, I think that people are a lot more, people were a lot more willing to understand you if you come at them, uh, you know, a little bit more gentle and a little bit more poetically or a little bit more vulnerably. Mm-hmm. Instead of coming at them like ready for a fight, if you come at them ready to talk and to, and to say how you feel and how, what you think, but in a way that is not like automatically causing people to come up and protect of themselves. So that's why as I got older, my lyrics became less confrontational and more conversational, mm-hmm. um, you know, less, less about provocation and more about being thought provoking, you know, to not to put too fine a point on it, I guess. Was there any influence early on from, uh, you said you had a pretty big background in punk at the time? Cause that's certainly a, a genre, which does like the kind of uh, vinegar style provocational, here's my opinion, deal with it kind of uh, messaging. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, back then I was, you know, dreadlocks down to my ass, like, <laughs> Amoebix t- t-shirt on every day, you know, like typical crusty punk, you know, absolutely a hundred percent. That was very, very, very punk. And I mean, those, the posters for that record had like the circle A and circle E on them. And like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was super crusty, you know, early 20s you know there was actually embarrassingly enough there were some corpse paint pictures from those days oh really oh we're gonna google that yeah <laughs> see if we can yeah. find them it's pretty rough it's that's <laughs> one of those things that i'm like because oh god that's that's one of those things that i always feel a little cringy about because i i've only had to wear corpse paint a few times in my life and i've done like session work for people and like i look so goofy in it you know i look goofy anyways so I look goofy without corpse paint, but it's ten, tenfold worse with the corpse paint on. Well, of course, like with the career, the length of yours, it's likely that you're going to experience that cringe a lot more than some of our other artists that have only yeah. been around for like five years or something like that, you know? <laughs> so you're yeah, in a tough spot years. in that sense. Yeah. Too busy to cringe in five years, but after 10 or 20, it gets a, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I'm not going to dig out the stuff I wrote during my uh, bachelor's degree and absolutely and not read that or try <laughs> to get it published. Well, and that's that's the thing is that like I've gotten to be buddies with some of these guys that like, you know, they they're doing bands now and I'm like in love with their band and I listen to them and they're like, dude, yeah, you, you know, I listened to you when I was in high school and I'm like, oh god, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
my 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 fiddle player charlie who just joined you know he's his first record to do with me was uh and again into the light he listened to panopticon when he was on the school bus in eighth grade oh my god you know and i'm just like oh that's so unfortunate you know <laughs> like it just makes me feel like you know a little uh, it makes me realize that i am uh aging a bit <laughs> But so it goes, you know, it's better than it's better. I guess it's better than uh, not aging because I'm dead. True. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> so actually you kind of uh, in this discussion, you've answered one of the questions you're going to ask, which is that, you know, why have you kind of made your lyrics a bit less direct? But I guess to combine that with that whole process, with the fact that we're working in metal, um, is there any kind of irony? Because you still do have, sorry, I, I've kind of, I should just start again, because even in, in your in your current lyrics, there definitely are political messages that are there, but there's a bit more metaphor and kind of framing around them, as you said. Uh, is there kind of an irony, though, in general, to having political and personal messages in a genre that is, you know, involves screams and growls that are often unintelligible to trained ears? Uh, like, when you write, is there a is there any effort or necessity in balancing a message that you may want listeners to hear against the fact that oftentimes, even if you're a huge metal fan, you can't actually hear what's being said? So there's a, a good friend of mine that plays in a band that I really love. And it's a band that I've really looked up to for many, many years. And uh, he was visiting in Minnesota and we were sitting in the sauna. And I was fortunate enough to get to hear their new record uh, or a working version of their new record. And, um, you know, this is a band that I've kind of waited, you know, I wait for with bated breath to hear their music and, and seeing them live is one of those things. It's just something, I mean, I finally have gotten to see them once and it was like, I, I cried because it was so moving. And um, we're sitting in the sauna and, and we're listening to the record in silence, you know, just really paying attention to the album. And uh, obviously I can't understand the lyrics at all. It's just screaming, like vicious mm. screaming. And the images that I could see in my mind from the sound, I, at the end of the album, I told him what I saw in my head. And there is no way, there's not a far chance in hell that I understood these lyrics. It's impossible. And he's like, dude, that's what song number two is about. You just Whoa. described a scene in the song. He was like, you literally just described everything that I was saying in the song. And I was like, wow, that's powerful, mm. you know, because when you can convey your feelings and your emotions, you know, I mean, case in point, and again, into the light, nobody knows what the lyrics are about. Everybody's done it right. <laughs> I mean, so many people have written me their stories about the album and, and they're right. Like everything they're saying is the shit that I was dealing with and the shit that I was facing in myself. And sometimes you don't have to, to spell it out for people. Sometimes music is the language. Mm. And, mm. I, and I think that that's really important to remember about metal is that the things that we're trying to convey, we convey with sound. It's not just lyrical. The music itself is lyrical. It's, you know, the music is the language that we speak. Think about all the bands that we all listen to that are from Scandinavia and from, you know, Germany. Like how many languages are we all fluent in? Like, you know, that, that's, but we know the general message of what's going on here because we can feel it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I love uh, Neguro Bunget and I, the most recent album blows my mind. I cannot understand a word of Hungarian, <laughs> but holy shit, if I, if I, I would guarantee you, I know what's going on. 
because you can feel it in the music. It, it, it resonates inside and it stirs deep within you. And I think, I think that's really, um, I think that's, that's really unique in a lot of ways to metal. It's because metal can be this like volatile explosive thing, or it can be this triumphant thing, you know, this music that, that stirs our emotions and, and, you know, it's, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's all I'm trying to say really. Mm. That actually aligns interesting with um, uh, some of the stuff because we've, we've been doing some research uh, on uh, like bands in Asia that that are into metal and, and how they kind of come at their languages, especially using non-English. And I was talking to um, a singer for a kind of battle metal style band in Japan. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, a lot of Japanese people don't speak that much English, but they tend to have a, a knowledge of a lot of random words because they had education and just contact and whatever. And he was saying very similar, like when he listens to these battle metal songs, he doesn't know the full lyrics, but his exact quote was something like, I hear words like mountain, fight, dragon. It's like, okay, I, I get the uh, I get the idea of what's going on with the song. I can kind of vibe with that, sure. that feeling of going to battle and that kind of, that's why I like the music so much is he could always get this, this image of a story just through a few words that would, uh, kind of give him um, the motivation or the the fighting feel of the song. Well, and it's interesting, you know, in those regards, like thinking about bands that are not writing in their, in their mother tongue, but also like being fans of, of music that, you know, we love the music so much, but the bands are not writing in a language that we can understand. And I remember, mm-hmm. I remember uh, once, once I started learning Norwegian and, and I, you know, went over and lived over there for a little while for a few months. And then I came back and like continued to learn the language because I had friends over there and stuff, you know, and I'm not like, you know, a great Norwegian speaker or anything, but I, I can do well enough to get by and have some conversations with people like, you know, simple conversations, and, you know, I can write some and, you know, and I, if I'm drunk enough, I get a lot <laughs> more confident in, in speaking Norwegian and then I can really, I can really, I, the, the inhibition away. You know what I mean? And, uh, but one of the things that I noticed was that once I learn quite a bit of Norwegian and get to the point where I could speak conversationally, I went back and I read a lot of the lyrics to a lot of the Norwegian bands um, that I had really loved, albums I really adored, that I'm not going to name any of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I really wish that I hadn't read those lyrics because <laughs> a, a lot of them are just dumb, you know? And I was like, damn. I wish I didn't know that, you know, because <laughs> in my mind, I was imagining that the lyrics were so epic. And instead, I'm like, this is really, you know, goofy, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So that's you know, that's part of the magic of it is that, you know, sometimes you can really be off like, you know, you mm-hmm. can understand what they're saying or what you think. What I guess what you put into it, what you're reading into the music, it reflects how you feel sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it doesn't always work the way that I was explaining you know <laughs> it's kind of a bag yeah sometimes you connect to a song and find out it's exactly what they're saying and sometimes you connect to a song and you find out it was actually something silly yeah you know yeah i, I guess it's a crapshoot yeah, <laughs> yeah a little absolutely. bit well seeing as you've mentioned uh, and we've just been speaking about non-english languages it seems logical then to um talk about some of this non-english language use in your lyrics because uh you know we, i think we've mentioned you know a bit about um norwegian and we mentioned swedish earlier but um i found it kind of interesting that some of the most explicit messages that are still in your lyrics um typically appear in non-english languages so um one example is uh from cedar skeletons that we mentioned earlier 
um, where you have the line, our pathetic existence adds too much weight. Uh, what was uh, once sacred now has no truths. Our fleeting residence causing permanent damage. Earth's heart is bleeding out. Only skeletons remain, which uh, we believe is in Spanish. So is yep, this the it's influence? in Spanish, but I did not write that. Yeah, well, mm. that's what we we're going to ask about. It's like, you know, so why did you decide to like bring in these other, um, you know, writers or other contributors to create content in non-English languages within the lyrics. Was there any, um, also just to hop on that, was there any back and forth or did you just let them yeah. put what they wanted to say into the song? Um, so Vic Sanchez did that and he was in this band called Wither and Rot. It's like a California neocross band. He and I have been friends for quite some time. He's a really good guy um, and I enjoy our friendship. Uh, and the last couple records, you know, whenever I'm working on something, I kind of send it to him and I'm like, what do you think? You know, do you like this? Is what, what, what could go better? And he was visiting last year when I was working on the record. I mean, it takes me, it takes me forever to make an album in spite of what seems like a rapid fire output of music, always working on something. And so like, uh, you know, I'll put an album out, but I've already got one almost finished by the time that the album finally does come out and, and another comes out another year and a half later, because I'm still picking it apart and dissecting it. And uh, that record, it was right around the time that Anna Get Into the Light had come out when he was visiting and um, I wanted him to do some guest vocals on it because he hadn't been in a band in a while and he really enjoys doing vocals and I was like and he's 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 Latin and and then he speaks Spanish uh and English both like equally fluently and uh and I was like dude you know like you're the song deals with this climate crisis issue um you know because the album is this this kind of like dual concept record about two two things at once right you know, the album is about aging and coming to terms with aging, but it's also about climate crisis. And that's the language that I use to describe aging and getting used to the fact that I'm, you know, my youth is behind me, is rapidly mm. becoming behind, right? And kind of coming to terms with like, okay, I'm entering this next phase of my life, which is my middle-aged years. And, you know, I'm accepting that these other parts of who I've been are gone. Uh, but that, you know, nobody wants to make an album about, hey, I bought a Ferrari and, you know, you know, got a had a midlife crisis. Mobile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's not that's not very poetic. Like, you know, so I, I chose instead to explain these doubts and, and deal with these. Um, these thoughts that I'm kind of recognizing that I'm entering this new phase in my life. Uh, by talking about climate crisis as well, because I felt like there was an intense parallel between the two things. Mm -hmm. And um, him living in California also is experiencing the effects of climate crisis, not in the same way that we are here in Minnesota until last year when we had massive wildfires in northern Minnesota, right by my cabin, which the fire started across the fucking street mm -hmm. and it burned 40 square miles and somehow did not burn my cabin down. I mean, what a stroke of luck. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm. Um, and if that had burned down, we wouldn't have been able to move here because we had to sell the cabin and the house mm. to get here. 
mm-hmm. immediately. So, I mean, that would have really screwed everything up. And um, so I was like, dude, write about the wildfires, you know? And he wrote about it in Spanish okay. because it felt right to do it, you know, in something that very was pertained to him very much. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I think that people like bringing their own, there's also lyrics on that album that are in Norwegian that my friend mm-hmm. uh, Patrick Ness wrote. You know, I, I feel like it's really, uh, it's really powerful to use your, to use a, a, a different language sometimes because it can add a different inflection and a different sound to the music. And it can, it can draw distinction between voices and, and vocalists. I mean, I even noticed when I switch languages, my voice doesn't sound the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I'll notice that when I'm talking to Southern people, I have a heavier Southern accent. And when I'm talking to Minnesotans, like that goes away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's knowing your audience and, and also, but also using it as, as an artistic tool. Mm-hmm. What about and, and to also oh, be fair, the, the song that's in Swedish was originally written in Norwegian, but the singer who sang that is a Swede, mm-hmm. and so he right. translated it into Swedish, and then he also used some. Uh, he's from Lapland, and he used some colloquial phrasing, uh, you know, regional colloquial phrasing or whatever, uh, to indicate his culture and where he's from, mm-hmm. and so that's why uh, that song is in that specific dialect, Swedish mm. dialect as well. Did you ask him to do that or was that kind of his uh, his little twist? That was his twist. Um, Cause originally the song was written in Norwegian mm-hmm. and he was like, I'm gonna change this to Swedish. And it's close enough, Swedish and Norwegian are close enough to where, you know, there's a lot of cognates. Uh, so it was fine, you know, um, you know, I can read it and understand it and it's fine. But then he wanted to change some of my phrasing to be indicative of where he is from. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was perfectly fine with that. I actually liked it better because it reflected the vocalist who was performing. It reflected his culture and his identity. Hmm. So speaking of like these languages more broadly, there are a lot of lyrics that you've written as well that draw on kind of Scandinavian uh, you know, words and languages. Um, broadly speaking, when you write, when you include words from other cultures, from non-English languages, uh, what's kind of your goal here? Does, does using non-English terminology create a particular effect in your mind? Um, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's just because of the way the word feels and sounds to me. Um, sometimes it's also just, it just kind of mixes things up and creates a, creates a different feeling and creates some oddness and i like that you know if i said everything you know like really bluntly that would be fine too but sometimes i like to make uh to 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 make the reader work for it a little bit and to think about it and to think about the implications and the cultural implication of what i'm saying you know especially when i when i use runes when i talk about runes in in my lyrics you know, the runes can be interpreted in many different ways. Um, and so that that creates some like flexibility in, in the meaning in the song, if that makes any sense at all. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, we're wondering as well, like, is your choice of like language to include in the lyrics just based on your own familiarity with these languages? Or is there any sense of, you know, some quality of those languages being particularly suitable to, you know, a genre like metal? Because of course, you know, we do see a lot of Scandinavian languages very well represented in a lot of metal lyrics. It, it's it's sometimes it's pertaining to the, to the subject matter. You know, mm -hmm. for example, the, you know, I can't speak a word of Italian, but uh, the La Passione di Saccarello at Vanzetti from the, um, the split with Lake of Blood is entirely in Italian. Mm. I do not speak Italian at all, as you just heard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure I, I butchered the hell out of that. But um, I won a song in Italian because Sacco, Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were Italian immigrants in America. And I felt like if mm -hmm. I did the song in Italian, that it was in a way very appropriate for their story as uh, immigrants, Italian immigrants in, in America and uh, in a way paying homage to them and their suffering and everything mm -hmm. that they went through, mm -hmm. uh, being unjustly convicted and murdered by the United States government. They were convicted. They were um, accused of being anarchists, right? Is that the is that the group, the pair I'm thinking of? Um, they were they were accused of crimes of uh, treason and terrorism. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to commit. It's hard to commit treason when you're not allowed citizenship. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And and there's there's incredible books about them and and documentaries about their story. I mean, we could talk about it all night and it's a really powerful uh powerful story what happened to them um but at the same time like i felt like the story was you know i i wrote a big thing about it in the liner notes of the release um but i really felt like it was powerful emotionally and aesthetically to do the song in in their mother tongue and so i did and it was hard as hell because I was like having to figure out as I'm tracking us, figure out how to pronounce these words as close as I could. And I'm sure I, you know, screwed it up pretty bad, but you know, thus far, nobody's really complained, but I'm sure they will now. I mean, with the, with the screaming and stuff, you yeah. know, it makes the accent kind of go away in any language, but how did you even go about like writing in a language you don't uh, necessarily speak? I wrote the lyrics in English and then I I had a, I was in communication with an Italian fan okay and he was so kind he was so kind to uh to translate the lyrics for me and he edited them to make them more poetic and he kind of walked me through this was back in the MySpace days oh wow when we had MySpace and that's how I got in touch with him was via via MySpace because you know I've never been like a social media guy I'm actually pretty reclusive um so you know, I don't, I don't have any social media at all. You know, my band has a, has a Facebook page that my label runs. I have zero access to it. So Marty always teases me and he says, he's going to use all kinds of flowery, goofy language when uh -huh. making posts <laughs> so that people, so that people will think it's me. So he taunts me with that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's how it worked. And he was really kind to do that for me and um yeah there's mm -hmm. that
I mean, you mentioned the liner notes. Um, when you write in non-English languages, do you hope that fans will kind of access what you're going for? Like on the new album, you have a song called uh, Yemlus, which is a homelessness in Danish. Like when you when it's you imagine uh, Hemlus in Norwegian, oh, is it? it means homeless. Oh, okay. Uh, Google lied to me and said it was a Danish word. Maybe right. <laughs> imagine quite similar. So it's uh, very similar. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is embarrassing. Egg on my face here. Uh, you have a sorry. You have a Norwegian word. It means homelessness. Um, or and homeless. like homeless. Sorry. Oh, so it's yeah. homeless. Yeah, homeless. Okay. Uh, so, but when a when you imagine your listener, you know, getting the album and looking at the track listing and seeing that for the first time, do you hope that they'll? Well, I guess hopefully not Google it because they'll get it wrong like I did. But do you hope that they'll investigate this? Um, like, do you think that? the words use of words that readers might not know conveys something to them that you know you hope that they get out of it well my choice to use uh scandinavian language in on the new album is because there's a lot of the new album that touches on a very important uh issue in minnesota which is the the early um you know the the you know not early but the the first generation Americans in, in mm -hmm. Minnesota that immigrated from Sweden and Norway. And the, that generation having kind of, they're kind of dying off. And it's uh, the Scandinavian American phenomenon. There's tons of them. I mean, everybody here's last name is son, ends with son or grand or, you know, feast or whatever. You know, so many of these Scandinavian names. I mean, um, my wife's family too, you know. Uh, where Hawkinson's and you know that's so much of a part of our you know with me being an adopted Minnesotan after living here for 10 years this is so much culture here and it, it's maybe very sad to see that older generation of Scandinavian American people dying off because they're reaching the end of their lives mm -hmm. and then when COVID came through and ripped through here um you know, so many of them got sick and died. And, and even like the Norwegian church, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in the twin cities stopped holding services. And this is like one of the things that those, um, you know, those old Scandinavian American folks, this is what they lived for. There was so much of, of the culture that is based around the elderly here. Every year, Hammerheart would do this, um, um, event um, in Fargo Moorhead area at a, a and a homecoming and uh, and there's there's an old uh, Stavit church there in a in a Viking ship that's been rebuilt and historically accurate stuff and we would there would be you know this Scandinavian American festival with all these vendors and it was mostly old folks that were there. There was even this, I remember, God, there was this Finnish, old Finnish lady who would play these beautiful love songs on the accordion. And I would just, they would just make me cry because it was so full of sorrow and beauty. And then there was just this deep poetry to the, to the whole area, the sentimentality of these people's culture and where they came from and, you know, what they carried on from their parents who immigrated to America and, um, their their immigrant experience, um, and so the first song, you know, the instrumental one, is kind of, um, uh, you know, it, it, it uses a hard fiddle, 
and you know it's a very like mournful scandinavian instrument um you know and and, and i felt the i felt the need to have some little like nods of the hat to those folks by using some of those language choices it was just it was more for me than anyone else hmm. okay so like for what do you mean for you the, the story you mentioned it's about kind of the, these older people right um but the story is right. for you no it was more like those language choices was more for me to like right. put in there it was like my way of acknowledging this thing that's really important to me and that I think is really beautiful and my way of kind of mourning the loss of that aspect of Minnesotan culture. Okay. I mean, then, <laughs> you know, I didn't, sorry, go ahead. Adam. Please go ahead. Well, what I'm saying is that by saying it was more for me is, I mean, I didn't expect anyone else to understand my intent. Okay. Mm. okay. Right. Right. So in saying that then, like, I mean, are you hoping to represent more of that cultural aspect of Minnesota's history? Um, and is that something that you're hoping like listeners can, if not, you know, investigate individual words and at least investigate like the connection between you know, that culture and the Minnesota context? Um, you know, I'm not like trying to like proselytize like the mm. Scandinavian American gospel and like get everybody to like eat lefse. <laughs> and and lingonberry jam and you know meatballs i'm not like trying to you know what I mean? <laughs> i'm not trying to be like now go have some more hot dish you know I, it's not what i'm doing here like i'm i'm more i was more or less um just kind of observing it and feeling a little bit of grief about seeing this thing that i think is really beautiful kind of go away and mm. and and it's not it's just the way it is you know and this this modern world where we have other things that we're interested in, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can't expect we can't expect like, you know, the Zennial crowd to like mow down a whole bunch of lutefisk at mm-hmm. Christmas time. You know, it, it, life goes on. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the life cycle. This is the way it is. Each generation defines themselves. And uh, in a way, like I just kind of feel a little bit of sadness about seeing some of these traditions go away with the grandparents you know and 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 we've had you know our family had some deaths a couple years ago you know our some of our loved ones that passed away our elders that passed away and so I just kind of I don't know I just kind of wanted to tip my hat towards them and and recognize what is being lost Mm. and and by no fault of anybody it's just you know, people, people age and, and what goes with them is the wealth of wisdom and experience and culture that they carried with them through their lives. And then that's gone when they go, unless we write it down, unless we, you know, document those things. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about. Uh, and that was, that informed my language choices. Is it, is it difficult at all to write these kind of personal and, and, you know, heartfelt messages in a second language? Because, like, you know, when, when we speak English or write in English, we can go back and say, okay, you know, I know all these words. This one's maybe not the best here. I can choose this one. Uh, but obviously, um, when writing in a second language, there's often times where we don't know as many synonyms or maybe we fall back on phrases that we know work because we're worried about making an error. 
when you're writing in a non-English language, do you ever find yourself kind of shackled by these kinds of limitations or do you have ways of getting around them? Uh, like, do you, do you have the ability to choose the exact word or do you kind of sometimes have to go, okay, this might not be perfect, but it is the best that I can do. And I'm okay with that. It, absolutely. I, I definitely, you know, like I said, I'm, like I said to you in an email, like I, I speak Norwegian about like a 10 year old <laughs> and, and it, you know, it's not great. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm significant. I'm not a particularly articulate guy anyways, but I'm, I'm significantly less so in a second language that I am not super fluent in. Um, but at the same time, when I choose to explore that creativity by writing in a second language, which kind of breaks me out of some of my kind of conventions that I kind of fall into like these ruts that I just kind of plummet into. And like, it's like always writing a song in a minor, you know, you start <laughs> off in a minor, and then all of a sudden someone gives you a capo and you're like, shit, I can play a minor all the way up here. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's, that was what like writing in another language helped me do. It helped me to find new lyrical devices and to get out of some of those old ruts. Um, and then if I don't know the word that I need, it gives me an opportunity to learn a new word. Okay. And that works out really awesome. Cause I'm like, I didn't know what the word for that was. Now I do. Mm -hmm. Cause I used it in the song. Hmm. So, so yeah, it's, it's always a learning process. Yeah. So speaking now more of your English medium lyrics, um, we did notice that you send, you tend to uh, use a lot of uh, monosyllabic or bisyllabic words throughout yeah a lot of the English medium lyrics as I said so for instance uh, the line as the heart beats fast and the fear sets in all is still beneath the winter sun as northeast is carved into flesh and bone what exists in the soul speaks when alone uh, from cedar skeletons that has you know 38 words and 27 of which you know that's about 71 percent are just one syllable long uh, and to take another example, No Hope um, from your last album has 236 words and 189, so 80%, are just one syllable long. Um, does, do those stats surprise you or have you kind of consciously designed your lyrics um, to be, you know, more, um, you know, monosyllabic, bisyllabic, more kind of straightforward in their style? Well, as I've said um previously and i'm not like a particularly articulate dude i'm not using a bunch of hundred hundred dollar words you know <laughs> I, that, that's not the way that i talk anyways you know unless i'm really angry and i'm really pissed off all the sudden stuff that i had no idea i knew comes out and um and i always joke that i wish that i could like be creative and write when i'm super pissed off because <laughs> um, then my lyrics would be better but um but no, um, I think I think what it is is I just have a tendency to to write my lyrics without judging it too much, mm -hmm. and also I want to be understood. Right. Um, you know, a, a great example of this is one of my favorite songwriters is uh, Chris Knight. Um, Chris Knight is from Western Kentucky. He's from Slaughter's. And uh, he is a fantastic songwriter. Um, I've got a lot of his records, a lot of his live bootleg of him. Um, and it's, this dude writes these like phenomenal songs. I mean, songs that I've learned and played at shows. Like there's a song that he wrote called Rural Route that I've played at gigs. And there's a song called Out of This Hole that I've played at shows. It's on my Live in Belgium record. Um, but 
the beauty of Chris Knight is, I mean, he's obviously a really intelligent dude, but he writes in a language that's is, his language is so simple that is so easily understood, but it's profound ideas, profound, profound thoughts, deep, you know, emotional things, you know, dealing with really dark things sometimes, dealing with really personal things, but he doesn't do it in a way that's only for the highly educated. He does it for people, normal working class dudes, you know, dudes like me that live out in the woods and, you know, can't, can't speak this like kind of highbrow language. Um, and I love him for that. I adore that he can convey these really powerful messages, but with very simple language that almost anyone can understand. Um, you know, and, and I feel kind of similarly about uh, Towns Van Zant and these kind of, uh, and, and Guy Clark, um, Steve Earle, um, these kind of writers that convey very uh, profound messages with very simple language. I like that. And so I guess it's natural that if I like something, I'm just going to do it myself, you know, cause like, I, it, it, you know, I'm not going to try to impress anybody with my vocabulary because it's not going to impress them. So I might as well just uh, use the tools that I have at my disposal to say what I want to say. There are sometimes though that you do use uh, some like larger words. Uh, so for instance, on your new, the upcoming album, uh, you had words like celluloid and uh, lugubrious that like we had to kind of look up and there's lines like suffering banality for an irreconcilable end or memory dissipation, like the hoarfrost delicate cling, the supplemental and envelopment of winter's prosthetic embrace. Uh, these are certainly quite heavy in terms of like syllables and uh, even words that maybe, you know, people might have to uh, look up to encounter. Are lines and words like this strategic? Uh, what kind of purpose do they have in your writing, especially kind of given what you've just said about a desire to, you know, be accessible, uh, generally speaking? You know, is there, a, um, is there a right amount of difficulty that you aim for? I've been pissed off. I think that I can think of. <laughs> I must have been mad about something. I must have stepped on a Lego or <laughs> stubbed my toe. You know? That's the only thing that I could think of. I mean, because it's, you know, I, I don't really talk like that. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I seldom write like that. Um, mm. You know, in fact, I think I remember when I wrote those lyrics. I was, mm. I was, I had just come back from a brew day. Uh, I had been, it was winter and I was brewing at work and I'd had a really rough day and uh, I got home and I went and uh, sat in the sauna um, and I had my phone when I was sitting in the sauna. My sauna at the time was like in the woods behind our house. It was like a little wood fired sauna and I was sitting in there and I was like, super pissed because I'd had a really shitty day at work and, um, and I was writing. And so there, there you have it. I was mad. There you go. <laughs> so I was do these big words feel like, why do you think they feel angry or why do you think they come out when you're, when you're angry? I have no idea. No idea. Mm. Did, does the song no idea. feel angrier when you perform it? Like when you perform a song that has big words in it, does it feel different to you? Like at, like after the fact, because obviously, you know, the emotion that, that spawned the lyrics might not be there 
Um, you might have to be like recalled live. You might not, you might have had a great day before you go on like a show, right? Right. And it's it's really strange. I think about that a lot because so many of my lyrics are really personal. And mm-hmm. you know, when we when we played our first ever live show, you know, and, and I have like a live band because on the records, I don't know if if y'all know, but on mm-hmm. the records is just me. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, except for guest vocalists and my string section. My string guys is my friend Patrick in Germany and Charlie in Texas, out in Texas. Um, uh, but, I, but, you know, I, I, I worried that when we played that record in its entirety on the subject of mortality from start to finish, as well as some other songs, because, you know, obviously that album's not long enough for our debut show. Um, I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to get through it, that I wouldn't, you know, because it's, it's so personal. You know, I wrote so much of that record after... Uh, coping with my with my dad's passing um you know with my old man's passing uh and uh you know kind of coming to terms with his death and um facing the the mirror that it held up to me about mortality which was you know up until his death it was not really something that you know I really thought of being such a young man at the time you know I wasn't really keen to think about dying mm-hmm. um and all of a sudden, death became incredibly real to me, which was really, really hard. And I missed him, and, and I missed that innocence that I had before. And um, I was really super worried that um, I, would, I would fall apart, or I would get too emotional, and I would fuck up and make mistakes, and, you know, all that kind of thing. But it ended up being okay. It was perfectly fine. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I can kind of compartmentalize those things mm-hmm. in a live in a live setting. I'm somehow somehow able to kind of turn it off weirdly, um, and then a lot of the time I'm super focused on just the enjoyment of being with my bandmates, my live band, who are just some of the most wonderful people, and and also the enjoyment of so many of the people that come to our shows. I mean, I've been so fortunate to become friends with so many of the people in our audience and see some of the same faces every single time we play. And it's such a joy to get to see them and to hang out with them before and after the show. And, you know, a lot of those folks I've ended up becoming like actual friends with, and, you know, we visit each other. I mean, that's how I met Vic, you know, and Vic came and did vocals on a record and is, mm. you know, come to visit, comes to visit me every year. I met him because he was at one of my shows. So that's just how it goes, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm able to turn that off, but as, as, you know, as far as do they feel angrier, I guess, yes. Okay. Mm. They feel more, um, determined. Mm. Right. You know, and they feel colder. Mm. Mm-hmm. They don't feel so folky and they don't feel so accessible. And sometimes right. anger can be something that's very like, you know, unrelenting and and driven and and also not considering of consequence you know so it's just like you know, pummeling like harshness and sometimes it using that kind of language can convey that determination i guess right there's a very nice parallel there with what we're seeing kind of the use of like the bigger words particularly in your earlier albums when you were younger and perhaps like experiencing more of those like emotions right and <laughs> full of piss and vinegar you mean yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. seems like they're all 
kind of yeah you can see this like coalescence of all these factors um that's very interesting shed a couple layers here it's getting warm in here it has uh been really super cold here uh winter does not want to end oh yeah in northern minnesota it's crazy we've had you should be getting warm now right well at some point here i mean we should be having some we should be having some melt off and we're Mm. currently not um it's just a ton of snow it just doesn't feel like it's ever going to end yeah i mean from my perspective always always living in australia and stuff i always reckon it'd be amazing to live somewhere where there's like snow like that i reckon it'd be really magical but i have heard from people like yourself that it can be quite an inconvenience <laughs> much more than it is like some kind of like wonderful uh, winter wilderness that i probably imagine it to be it is really beautiful i mean i mean i've certainly done my fair share of writing about snowfall <laughs> yeah, snowbird and snowbird and branches is like a a prime example, you know. And there's there's a line in snowbird and branches um, that's about how like um, God, where is it? I can't even remember my own damn lyrics. Huh. It's pathetic. Um, I've got them here somewhere. Ah, here we go. Come on, open up you. Desolate are these nights, stay close to the fire's warmth till the sun again burns bright at the arrival of dawn. The forest painted blue in the absence of vitriol, burned out and forgotten momentarily the artificial glow. Snowfall whites out my mind, my fingers fall numb, possessed by snow snowbird and branches, thankful winter has come. Let concrete have its poison, let buildings rot and fall, give me the north woods and give me the mountains or give me nothing at all. Um, so the, what I'm getting at here is like, there's this, this line about, uh, the forest painted blue in the absence of vitriol refers to the blue hour, which is what's happening Mm. right now. Let's see if you can see it. Do you see how everything is blue? Oh, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. When the sun goes down right at dusk and everything is covered in snow, it turns everything blue. And it's the craziest thing. Yeah. And it's like, especially if the moon comes out, it makes it even more blue, (laughs) you know? Mm. And, um, And so, like, there's a certain peace about that. You know, in that line, the forest painted blue in the absence of vitriol, burned out and forgotten momentarily, the artificial glow um, is getting away from screens, getting away from modernity, mm-hmm. getting away from the controls of modern society and how everything's this the invasive, you know. Everywhere you look, there's something monitoring us or there's something demanding our attention, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Messenger, little dinging phone or your TV, advertisements, whatever. And there's something peaceful about winter because it slows everything down and Mm. it covers everything in snow. And then at night, the sun goes down, everything turns this calm, cool blue, you know, 
And then here we have the Northern Lights, you know, and that's like the craziest shit you've ever seen in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing the sky with this green fire just like whoo, everywhere, it's bonkers. You know, I've only seen it about 18 times, but every time I see it, I'm like, holy. Only 18 times? Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I know a lot of people that have lived here a lot longer and they've seen it so many times that it doesn't blow their mind anymore. They're just kind of like, oh, Northern Lights. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. When you say, Mm -mm. you know, snow is like, oh, yeah, I could see it being majestic. It is. Okay, I'm gl- I'm glad I'm not like just fantasizing about you know something totally unrealistic. Especially no, in the city, not. like in the city, it gets kind of like it, you know it gets covered in you know gunk and car junk and whatever, and you get that kind of brown sludge on the side of the streets. But then you move outside where there's less cars and just white, and the trees covered in it. Yeah, it's beautiful. You're a hundred percent right. Like when you're in cities, it's pretty grody. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> St. Paul midwinter oh, like was pretty, dingy, pretty gross. Dingy. Yeah. But it was beautiful you, you in the morning, it. and then cars drove over it and sprayed, you know, gray mud and sludge all over everything. And it's awful. But you know, you go out a, a little bit distance out there and yeah. Just did you did you go up to the North Shore and stuff when you were here? Not a whole lot, but I spent one um I spent like an Easter, no, Thanksgiving, uh at my buddy's house in Black Duck. Uh and they're like his parents have a cabin that literally if it rains too much, like they just can't get into town, like that level of you know, kind of isolation. Um, like really, you know, rode up a mountain and not paved. So uh yeah, a little bit too much rain, can't drive. Uh and so we spent like a mountain. I'm not familiar with where Black Duck is, but the only mountains that are up here are, are like Mount Josephine and Eagle. Mountain. Oh, not not a literal mountain, but like a, a a hill, an up an uphill slant. Like you have to drive up. Well, Mount Josephine and Eagle Mountain are pretty big, and so that's what I'm wondering if that's where you were. Uh I don't. I wish I could. Lake Superior. Uh, I don't know how close we're Lake Superior. Like we we basically only spent time at at the cabin. Then we go down to town to buy like breakfast food and stuff sometimes, and then come back up. But like, it was just um, trees all around, like a, a frozen lake. Uh, they had a little sauna too, and just you know, you wake up and just pure white in every direction. That's um, the awesome yeah. thing about northern Minnesota is that, like, um, with northern Minnesota, it's like everybody up here's got a sauna. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but you learn really quickly why. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. you're out shoveling snow. Like, uh, I made a a pathway around our house. I spent like six hours shoveling snow uh one day because it was just so bad that we had gotten such a a dumping that you just couldn't get anywhere Mm -hmm. and and i remember i finished it and i mean literally it was like it was like a meter deep everywhere and so i like dug out my fire pit and i dug out we had an outdoor sauna that we brought up from our old house we just took our old one and brought it up here but the house that we bought has one in the basement already Mm -hmm. And we're lazy, so we use that one because it's electric. But the outdoor one, it was really cool, and it's wood-fired and all that shit. And I was like, oh, I don't want to let it go. So we loaded it on a trailer and brought it up here. So I dug it out with the good intentions of I'm totally going to use this. No, I didn't. The <laughs> one was just too brutal. I kept using the indoor one. And I dug out all around the house, dug out everywhere. And by the end of it, it was just like, I couldn't feel my feet. <laughs> you know, like uh, I was 
painfully aware of my tips of my fingers, you know, and that's why people have that. I mean, mm-hmm. just winters are brutal. I mean, especially up here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the town next to us, embarrassed Minnesota, holds the uh, the record for coldest place in the lower forty eight states. Mm. Coldest actual yeah. temperature, and then Tower holds the the um, the record for coldest uh, average temperature. I'm not surprised. Like, like I, I grew up in you know Utah, which is has a lot of snow, and like I lived in um, Nagano, Japan, which also held the Winter Olympics, which had snow. But there's no place I've ever been in my life that that had the cold that Minnesota had. Like, like, like I remember being just bundled up in like you know. S- shirt and sweater and jacket and a bigger jacket on top of that and still you know walking down the street and having like a wind gust come on off the something coming down off of the great lakes cutting just right through everything i'm wearing like like getting stabbed with a knife just cold well in utah it's got high desert doesn't it yeah yeah so we have a very dry a very dry crazy yeah i've never seen high desert years ago it blew my mind it's so intensely beautiful Oh yeah, yeah. Those colors and the vegetation, and I mean, I was just we were driving through. Um, I wasn't in Utah. I've been to Utah once, and I've been to New Mexico, but we were playing that uh, festival, um, Fire in the Mountains, which is in mm-hmm. Wyoming. Okay, which is great. Y'all should totally go to it because it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's a bit of a but flight, we but landed yeah. in. We landed in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And and we had to drive all the way over to to Wyoming for that. And we drove through all this high desert, going going through Salt Lake City, and then crossing over into um, north. Was it northern Idaho? Yeah, yeah. And and it was the whole time we were listening to like Western, like <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was so amazing. And I'd never seen that environment before. It really blew my mind. You know, I looked like a tourist, like taking all these photos, like, oh my God, you know. All right, anyway, we better get back to work. All right, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so um, let's see. I think we're, uh, should we just start with the yeah, question? Is that I ju- I just, come in? Yeah, or absolutely. But I just had like a little question. I just mm-hmm. kind of off the dome, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, so as we've been talking about your English lyrics, I noticed that you've often compared them to how you talk, saying either that, you know, the lyrics that you've written in the past either do or don't represent like how you speak, which I think is a really interesting comparison to make because we've kind of had an ongoing conversation over the course of this podcast as to whether or not lyrics should represent the way in which you speak. You know, should it be conversational English or should it be this kind of either elevated form of English or, you know, form of language that's not in any way representative of everyday talk. Like, is that Mm -hmm. something conscious for you? Like, do you want to kind of avoid, you know, even if we kind of remove this from the discussion of accessibility that we talked about earlier, like, do you want lyrics that represent how you yourself would just have a conversation? Well, you know, it's going back to the Chris Knight thing. Like it's, it's, I want to be understood. Um, when I want to be understood, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when I don't want to be understood, <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's just for me, it's just my personal self-expression that me just screaming it out into the ether, you know, just kind of getting it out there and saying what I got to say, get it off my chest and hope nobody notices. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think this like kind of plain spoken language, 
<laughs> it, it's been more of a recent phenomenon. Uh, well, I guess it really hasn't. The lyrics on, on the subject of, mort- of mortality are pretty plain spoken. Mm. And that's an older album. Mm. Um, I guess it really just depends on how I'm feeling. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the, the language choices have to, have to fit the emotion. And, and, and it can be like a profound thing that's said really simply, right? Mm. You know? Yeah, totally. And, and I don't want to dress up, I don't want to dress up simple concepts, you know, like with big words. I don't want to be, a, you know, a, you know, makeup on a pig. Mm. You know? But it's just interesting because like one of the things that some of the musicians we've spoken to who do try and like differentiate their lyrical styles from their, you know, conversational English is that, you know, doing so, means that the lyrics are going to be taken you know more seriously or they're going to be looked at more in line with like poetry or you know literature versus you know if they were to write then in conversational English like it would just seem you know too everyday but that doesn't seem to be a concern for you right I guess you know I guess I never really think about what other people are going to think about me other than the fact that like you know, if something's too personal, maybe I don't want them to know, mm. you know, what, what I'm saying, what's on my mind, because I, I feel like it's too exposing, yeah. but I'm not like worried about being taken seriously because I recognize that I'm a total goofball. And <laughs> if they knew me, if they knew me, they wouldn't take me seriously anyways, you know, <laughs> but um, it's just one of those things, I guess it doesn't cross my mind because I'm kind of you know, I guess in a way, a lot of artists are kind of, a lot of artists and musicians and poets are kind of self-absorbed, right? You know, because we're expressing ourselves and how we feel about the world and we get kind of lost in that. Um, And so maybe it just doesn't cross my mind because in the moment I'm too busy just barfing up my heart. Mm. And, and that's, you know, I guess it just doesn't cross my mind. Like, was my people going to see this as poetry or should I use, should I, you know, should I should I put on a, a verbal tuxedo and mm. you know mm-hmm. take it more seriously? Instead, I'm usually just kind of like, this is what I think, this is how I feel. And the language fits my emotion. Like the language fits what I'm dealing with, you know. Mm. Was this true even when you were younger? Like, have you ever felt the pressure to like make your lyrics metal, quote unquote? No. No. I mean, because I was really kind of more of a punk. Mm. still kind of am mm-hmm. um also when i was younger i really struggled with mental illness really hard really badly mm-hmm. and that's been uh that's informed a lot of what i do a lot of the music that i make kind of deals with some of those things and deals with being a person living with severe mental illness it's mm-hmm. it's been something that it's not something that i've you know, I've really talked about a lot because it's, you know, it's not particularly anyone's business, Hmm. but it's definitely been, Panopticon has been the way that I've dealt with that stuff. And so when I was younger, I hadn't really gotten a grasp on myself at that time. I was still, I was still pretty fucked up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think my lyrics reflected that. I think my lyrics reflected somebody who was kind of a little unstable mm-hmm. um, and as I've gotten older and more stable and more comfortable with myself and more comfortable with my emotions 
and kind of able to express them in a less uh, chaotic way. So, mm. so yeah, maybe that maybe that had something to do with it, and or maybe it also just had something to do with being young. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Being young and hungry, and you know, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Nice. I mean, I'm just kind of like thinking about it. Like I'm like, well. I mean, a lot of these things you guys are asking are things I've never really thought about before. Well, you know, it's kind of our our goal. That's to, our brand, yeah. yeah. yeah our brand. <laughs> try to try to bring up some, you know, some topics that sometimes it's just chance, but sometimes they they lead to you know reflections that we find mm. interesting. Because actually, like on the topic of of youth to now, um, we have noted a few features that we'd say are kind of consistent in your lyrics, and that they come up, you know, uh, repeatedly throughout your your career as a as a author and writer and poet and musician. Um, and one very simple one is that you definitely kind of used rhyme throughout your career. Uh, back in two thousand and eight, you had the pair "Locked Away," yet I possess the key. I am the master of my own slavery. A uh, patient from 2011 Social Services has I awake from behind. Uh, sorry, I wake behind window bars in a room so white, cold like melting frost in the summer's night. Uh, from Scars of Man, you have the song "The Moss Beneath the Snow," which repeats, "There may only be a few, perhaps we'll never know, but the answer will haunt us." So ask the moss beneath the snow. And on the new album, you have even a longer rhyme series: "In nothing cold can stay, in the world of rotten decay, the end times underway, nothing cold can set stay." Uh, why do you think rhyme is a technique you've used throughout your career uh, and what kind of what effect does it bring? Why do you think it's been a kind of consistent element of your of your writing? Not not every song, obviously, but something that, that you come back to as a technique. I don't know. I mean, okay. it, it's, sometimes it just, you know, sometimes it just feels right. And sometimes you stumble upon a rhyme scheme that works. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes when I write, I just kind of write free form almost as if i'm speaking you know because mm-hmm. uh, that's just what comes out and writing okay let's be honest there is something tremendously satisfying about a rhyme scheme right mm-hmm. you know when you're writing something and it just keeps on rhyming and you keep on coming up with ideas it kind of feels like you know it, it feels it feels like little victories that you're making <laughs> yeah sold you know, a little puzzle <laughs> yeah it's like you keep finding the right piece to the jigsaw puzzle uh-huh. and you just keep on you're on a winning streak and i feel like rhyming can be like that um but eventually you you run out of words that fit the time scheme and so you have to find another device to find your way to the next thing but then sometimes it just happens it just comes out that way and mm-hmm. and and that's enjoyable. That's pleasurable, I think. Um, but it's never um, something that I do. You know, it's never something that I do that I'm willing to like sacrifice the meaning of what I'm saying to fit the rhyme scheme. Okay. I'm never like, oh shit, this word doesn't rhyme, but I should use this word so I can keep it going. You know, I'll, I'll abandon the rhyme scheme just like randomly and just go off, you know, Oh, you know, it's like, look, something shiny. And then I just go get it, you know? <laughs> and so it's, 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 ne- <laughs> it's never, it's never the top priority to stay with a rhyme scheme for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And how about the use of repetition then? Cause we touched on it with the line, um, nothing can, uh, nothing cold can stay. Um, but you have a lot of songs that repeat a line throughout, you know, your career so far. So um, be it four uses of, um, you know, which side are you on, which you you know, mentioned earlier, is from 
uh, written by another writer um, on the track with the same name and No Hope um, from uh, and again into the light um, is particularly interesting repeating um, she has yet to try uh, forever refusing to be held down and uh, when we all chase the grain um, the latter of which um, appearing to reference back uh, to the song uh, Chase the Grain from uh, 2014's Roads uh, to the North. So, yeah, what makes a line feel like it um, can or should be repeated for you? A lot of the time it's it's uh, position in the song. Mm. If there's a if there's a part that the music is really powerful and you need something that's more like an anthem, you know, something that's more like you want to convey some emotion. So you repeat a line again and again to emphasize the importance of the line, but also the power of its delivery. Mm. So it's like, if I want this to sound really emotional and really powerful, you know, I'll say the line again, you know, and, and, and to be honest with you, if I am to be honest with you, I, there's mm. definitely been times where I've been like, fuck, I don't got enough lyrics for this. Yeah. <laughs> And and I know that like that's that's lame and and I try to avoid those kinds of things. Um, but most of the time when I when I have a when I have a line that I repeat again, it's because I'm trying to convey some emotional intensity. Mm. Well, those are you usually know? the lines that stick in people's minds as well, right? Like you know when you hear it like several times, that kind of you know ends up being kind of the hallmark of that song in a sense, right? What well, what is it they say that if you want to convince yourself of something, you're supposed to repeat it like seven yeah. times, <laughs> yeah. commit it to memory or whatever. And and I, I'm sure that there's some there's some you know psychology to that that I totally don't understand. Um, however, um, for me, it's mostly just and okay. So a lot of the time, so this is weird. Mm. A lot of the time when I'm recording, I like to keep the first take. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, because That's unusual. Yeah. The first take is the most sincere. It's the most gut wrenching. It's the most, especially because what I do is this emotional purge, right? So I'm like, mm. you know, I always joke and say that the reason that I do Panopticon is because I don't want you to read about me in the news. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> okay. And you know, you know, crazed drunk Kentucky man, you know, does X Y Z, whatever. You know, I don't want that to be the case. So it's this emotional purge where I put all these intense feelings and intense observations that I have about the world. And so a lot of the time I find when I'm tracking the first time that I do a song is the most sincere. It's the most charged. It's the most, you know, it conveys the way that I really feel because I'm not being like, Oh man, my voice cracked like there, right there. It doesn't sound very brutal. I better go back and do it again. You know? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's, that seems a little, you know, I get it. Like, I want the record to sound good. Sure. Everybody wants the record to sound good. But I also recognize that sometimes the flaws and imperfections of the record is what conveys how you really feel. And, and I'm, you know, I'm aware of that by the music that I like, you know, the, the, the musicians that I love so much, you know, I listen to their records and their live records and stuff when they aren't perfect but I, I enjoy the feeling that they show and the feeling that their performance gives. And so sometimes when it comes down to it and it's time to, you know, to do something and I haven't like really sussed it out, you know, all the way, I'll repeat the line again because I just don't have another line. Mm. Then I'll listen to it, I'll listen back to it and I'll say, you know what? I actually like that. 
you know, it gives some power and some vigor to the music. So I'll keep it, mm. you know, but I mean, then again, it's just me in this room, you know, this studio by myself. So nobody knows. <laughs> you know, I could do Until it. now. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of a mythos to that first so, yeah. track, like first take kind of thing, isn't there? Cause mm. I, I remember like, um, uh, the one that sticks out is uh, Bauhaus's Bella Lugosi's Dead. That apparently was like a first take. And it's always given the song like a bit of a, ooh, mm. ooh, this is the, this is the first thing. They got this in one take, ooh, kind of, you know, mythos to the, to the track. Sure. I mean, it's there. I think I totally think that there's an element of like intense emotional sincerity that you get when it's a first take because mm-hmm. it's like, but once you, I mean, what happens, is it worth keeping if it's really fucked up and it doesn't sound <laughs> right and everything's a total wreck? Are yeah. you going to be like, no, that's the one, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so th- there comes a point where you have to, you have to pitch it and, and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this again, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I at least like to keep some of it. If I don't keep the whole vocal take, you know, I'll go back in and punch in the lines that are goofed up. Mm-hmm. But I like to keep some of it because that keeps some of that original energy and emotion, you know, present in the song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another well, kind of oh, sorry, go ahead, Justin. You go, you go. It's all right. I know. Um, another kind of thing that that we've noted a little bit throughout your career is that there's a kind of an occasional use of swearing. Um, there's no real swords on the the album that's coming out, but you know, there's been albums. There's been lines like "out of tune lullabies to a world gone to shit." Uh, the Swedish track that was mentioned even has the word shit in Swedish. So I guess just broadly, um, obviously, you know, you're not using a lot of swearing, but you do use it occasionally. What's What kind of makes you decide, okay, I'm going to put a shit here or a fuck here, but I'm not going to use them more broadly. Like, when do you when do you know when to put a word like that into your songs? I don't really swear a lot in my lyrics mm-hmm. uh, intentionally. Um, I swear a lot when I speak and I'm aware, and I'm aware of that. Um you know, uh, when I was growing up, it was one of those things in my household that swearing was not okay. But on the other hand, like my mom, who's like the most amazing person, I'm crazy about my mom. I think she's a great human. She swears and then like tells me not to. <laughs> and, uh, <Yeah. laughs> and now I swear a lot, you know, and I, and I apologize to my mom when I swear in front of her, but it doesn't stop me from doing it. And, um, you know, but I remember when we did the live in Belgium thing, like it was in this old church in, in Belgium. And my mom was like, don't you swear in that church? Okay. And I, you know, of course I did, you know, just so it was, beyond, you know, just so it was recorded. And then, and I, then I said, sorry, mom, you know, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's, it's just something that I don't do a lot, you know, um, in fact, the live album, the, the live migration, we edited all the in-between song banter out because I, sw- I swore a whole lot. Um, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Like, like anytime I spoke, there was a fuck in there or a shit in there. And so we edited all that out. Also, there was a lot of like crowd banter of the audience, like cracking jokes and me and mm-hmm. Andy laughing our asses off. And it made the record too long because we were just laughing. Panopticon shows are glorified basement shows. So it's... <laughs> you know very very little separation between the audience and and us you know it's we're all friends and that's one of the reasons i love it so much it's because it's just a big room full of friends um but yeah so on the records i kind of i avoid it 
I mean, every now and then I, I use, mm-hmm. I use a swear word, but it's just when it fits, mm. you know, like you mentioned earlier. Just, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just saying, sometimes it just fits, you know, and you can't resist it. You mentioned earlier, though, like that you want to kind of have your music reflect the way that you talk, but you talk, you said you swear more than when you talk than when you sing. Like, what, why is it that kind of this uh, write lyrics that, that sound like who I am, uh, the swearing doesn't go into that kind of process? What is it about swearing that means just that I, A lot of the time, it's just because I don't want to disappoint my mom. <laughs> Just to, just to, just to put it, I mean, you know, my mom, what if my mom finds one of my albums and there's all kinds of fucks and shits on it. I mean, even this, even this interview, my mom's going to hear that and she's going to be like, Austin, why do you swear so much? You know, <laughs> we're, we're not swearing. We're talking about <laughs> you know? the words. Yeah. We have to say the words to it's contextual. Yeah, it's contextual. It's contextual. Yeah. She's going to be like, yeah. I heard what you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll so cut out the bit when you say she swears like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just wrap me out. <laughs> and the whole church bit will get it out and be like, you know, it was very clean during the church. She knows. She she's heard. And also, my cousin, my cousin John, like, her to show my mom everything. So, <laughs> so it's it's all out in the open. But yeah, no, there's a there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of that pressure. Like you know, just being cognizant of the fact that like I I do have um people that are listening that perhaps you know perhaps that's not necessary you know do, okay. I, do I really to use vulgarity like it'd be super vulgar in my lyrics you know if I don't need to then I mm-hmm. you know I won't right but like I say sometimes it just fits well when it does fit like you know when you do decide to use a swear word do you find that like the inclusion of that vulgarity as you say adds something that you know clean lyrics alone wouldn't carry like a lot of research in linguistics for instance has indicated that swearing uh can play a really important role in expressing emotions um or Mm -hmm. you know of course receiving emotional states or interpreting emotional states as well like is that kind of what it is for you I mean, yeah, mm. yeah, sure. I mean, sometimes, like I say, if it fits, then it, it, if I'm trying to say something that I feel powerful, powerfully about, that I feel strongly about, uh, I think there's actually some swearing and chase the grain, isn't there? Mm. I think yeah, there's, I'm not sure the exact, we didn't write down the exact songs, but there's a few, like there's scattered yeah, swear scattered, words, but, yeah. but I think, not I think, I think a lot. Chase the grain has a fuck in it. And, um, mm. And then uh, there's another song off Roads to the North that has a fuck in it. Um, and then obviously Autumn Eternal has a, quite a few. Um, that last line, out of tune lullabies, the world gone shit. Uh, I was, uh, I just, I don't know. I felt like it was, uh it was appropriate because some people had complained that the penny whistles on uh, Kentucky weren't perfectly in tune because they're made out of tin. <laughs> they're a, they're a, a penny's worth of tin. It's not like you can really get it perfectly in tune and people mm. are like, oh my God, it's out of tune. <laughs> and, I, and there was some criticism about that. And I was like, come on, you know what a penny whistle is? It's not like a high tech instrument. You know, it's not going to be perfectly in C standard you know, with my guitar, it's not going to be just right, you know? And, uh, and so that line was kind of a snarky, 
mm. retaliation out of tune lullabies to world gone to shit was me kind of accepting the fact that my music is imperfect and mm. I am an imperfect person, extremely imperfect. And my music is also imperfect and the world is imperfect. Hmm. I actually like that line a whole lot. Good line. Yeah. yeah. I thought it would be cool to have on the sleeve of a t-shirt, but then I was like, oh, I don't want people wearing that. Just <laughs> 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 sell that at the merch table. My mom saw your new t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah moving out more broadly you have a number of songs that take the first person perspective um many which describe a scene and many which move between these two frames so how do you decide if you're going to insert yourself um into a song assuming that the eye in these cases does refer to you well a lot of the time the eye doesn't refer to me oh interesting oh, okay yeah i write in character sometimes Mm. Even though the songs yeah. you say are very personal? Well, I write in character, but the character that I'm writing about may reflect something that I think, but I am not writing. It really doesn't make any sense. But if you think about the, scar, the Scars of Man on the Once Nameless Wilderness, so many of those songs are written from a character's perspective. Mm-hmm. But the character is the narrator. Mm-hmm. Narrator is telling you something that me as the writer thinks or feels, but through the guise of narration of a character, fictional events, these kinds of things, you know? Yeah. So, so sometimes, sometimes the I is totally me, but it's not really me. It's like, you know, some imaginary person that's conveying my message. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that kind of, that kind of anonymity gives me some wiggle room. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that, I mean, that surprises us a little bit given how um, impersonal the lyrics are, but it makes, like, it's anyone who writes a novel that has a character that expresses their own opinions, it's the same thing, right? They have a character, a protagonist. Exactly the same thing. That's a much more articulate way to put it. <laughs> it <laughs> that makes a lot more sense than what I just said. Oh, it's the same no, thing. No. Same thing, yeah. yeah exactly the same thing. Uh, okay, um, well, what about, like, in terms of broad themes? Because, uh, obviously... A part of it is is likely you know where you live and and what you engage with day to day. You say you go out into nature to write, but uh, obvious on all your albums, uh, these themes of frost and rhyme and snow, ice, nature, winter keep kind of coming up again and again. Is this just a product of being in nature and being in winter, or does winter have a kind of thematic meaning to you, or does it even just feel metal in a way? There's obviously lots of you know black metal in frost, you know. Uh, mm immortal on a on a frosty mountain that kind of stuff i mean we all like immortal here let's just (laughs) yeah of course of course (laughs) get that out of the way Mm -hmm. we'll just we can all accept the fact that we enjoy immortal yeah and uh Mm -hmm. but uh no it's just i mean winter is such a huge part of minnesotan culture it's i mean it the first snowfall here in ely happened in october Mm -hmm. you know uh and i've seen snow in september before in the 10 years that I've lived in Minnesota and it snowed today. It's been snowing since I've been inside this room talking to y'all. Yeah. You know, I looked out the window earlier and it started up again and I was like, damn it. You know? <laughs> um, so it's just, winter is just such a huge part of our lives here in Minnesota. And, but it is inspiring too, you know, I mean, you can't see snow and not 
feel some connection to it or you know it's 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 beautiful but it's also scary you know i think about like that song echoes in the snow um my wife hates that song Mm. absolutely hate and she doesn't like me playing it um she doesn't want to listen to it and the reason that she hates it is not because of the song um the sound it's because of it's it's be, it's because of the way that um, that it expresses life in Minnesota, the dangers of something simple, mm-hmm. like coming home from work. You know, mm-hmm. something as simple as driving to the grocery store. You know, and then a, and then a, a storm hits, and 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 then and before you know it, you know you're in the ditch or, and then you're in the ditch. And, and then now you have to worry about getting safe and finding shelter so that you don't get too cold or, you know, get frostbite or whatever. These are all like very real things that happen in Minnesota. And the character in that song, you know, sees a, sees a roadside accident up the road and he can't stop in time because he slips and then he nails into the people in front of him and he dies. And the last line of the song is about the dawn. She'll get the call. They'll bury me come the fall. Nights of December when the winter wind blows, screeches and scream echo in the snow. And Mm -hmm. that is something that has kept Becca up at night Mm -hmm. when I've been working late in the brewery. And she's like, why isn't he home yet? Did he get in the rack? you know, cause it's snowing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, I mean, there's a certain element of the culture that's just, it permeates, you know, winter permeates Minnesotan culture. It's just a part of our daily lives and who we are, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I can't help but write about it. If I didn't write about it, it would be disingenuous. Mm. You know, if I wrote songs about deserts and palm trees and shit, that would be like, ridiculous because that's doesn't reflect the world that i live in at all if you did live in that world though do you think you would like is it possible to write like a a black metal song about you know a a hundred degree nice day on a beach i mean what about that didn't that dude that sacred sun dude with the sunglasses he did that shit didn't he (laughs) i'm not sure it's not familiar i i mean i didn't check out his lyrics but it's the picture of him on the cover looks like a (laughs) photo you know, uh, he has like sunglasses and he's all in the sun. Anyway. We got to um, check this out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when I lived in, when I lived in Kentucky, I mean, I wrote about life in Kentucky. Um, my friend Tanner refers to what I do as a regionalist metal. Okay. Because I write about the environment that I'm in and the inspiration that I see outside and that, that, that I, the land that I tread. You know, everything that's around me is what I write about. And uh, so I guess, you know, if I lived in Arizona, that that would inform my writing. If I lived in Florida, that would inform my writing. I mean, given given the given the situation that I have been in in the past and in, in now, I don't see any reason why it would be any different. But however, you know, I guess it doesn't sound very brutal or grim or frostbitten to write about palm trees. Yeah you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i guess yeah <laughs> at first glance yeah a desert might work but palm trees seem a little hard not saying mm. it can't be done I'd, I'd like to hear the challenge yeah. but 
grim grim coconuts you yeah know? <laughs> so there's gotta be, be something metal and something dark about you know spending all your days I mean, as a as a kind of pale redhead i certainly find uh, the sun to be terrifying <laughs> ginger torture yeah exactly exactly (laughs) christ you gotta edit that out (laughs) (laughs) no no i i I get what you're i get what you're saying uh i mean i I, it does seem opportune that i have the chance to Mm -hmm. sincerely write about winter and darkness Mm. it's not like a shtick because it's here Right. Yeah. So, so I get that. I get how that could seem that could seem all too convenient. Hmm. But hmm. it is the reality of anybody who, you know, lives here. I mean, it's it informs, but I don't write about it as a negative. I don't write about uh winter as a negative. I, I celebrate it. And I hmm. think that that's a lot of people that live here that live in Minnesota do celebrate it. You know, everybody gets out and they go skiing and snowshoeing and they go ice fishing and like you get into it and it becomes like a huge part of the culture. It's it's people love it. People celebrate winter here. You yeah, know, and I do. I mean, I, granted, after seven months of it, you're kind of ready for it to be over. But but yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um. So you've been very, very kind enough to uh, show us some of your lyrics before this interview. But um, while you know not printing lyrics is a decision that's far from rare in the metal scene, uh, you're actually the first person we've interviewed who has decided to not publish some of the lyrics. You mentioned the upcoming album will be, but the last few kind of have not been. Um, and I guess that said, you have published lyrics in the past. So how do you decide if you'll publish your lyrics or, or not? Um, are there songs you want fans into the lyrics to and potentially engage with and talk to you about shows and et cetera? Or are there songs that when like you finish an album and say, oh no, this is a bit too personal. I want it to kind of be a mystery. You know, it, it really depends. It really depends on the subject matter. And there are some, because, because ultimately I make records because I need to process. Mm-hmm. I make records, as I joked earlier, so that you don't read about me in the news. Um, I make records because I need to process my own thoughts and feelings. Some of those thoughts and feelings are things I choose not to share with other people. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, well, you know, then why, why put them out in the first place? Right. Well, I mean, it's really doesn't make a difference because as we've talked about earlier, it's not like you can understand what I'm saying anyways. <laughs> Cause I'm screaming my guts out and it's covered in reverb. So you're not going to know what the hell I'm saying. And so there's also some sort of satisfaction in knowing that you just screamed out into the, you know, into the void, what you think and what you feel. And there's a sense of satisfaction that you have in knowing that you've gotten it off your chest. It's out in the world and it's just echoing through the world. There is, that's definitely, that's definitely something that I think about and has crossed my mind pretty regularly. Um, And a lot of the time I'll have the intention of putting the lyrics out, but then I totally chicken out at the last minute because I'm like, ah, it's too personal. I don't want people knowing how I really feel, you know? And it's also different. Like when someone asks me, when we talk, you know, and I'll kind of talk to them, you know, I'll meet somebody at a show and they'll say, what was this song about? And I can always find some way to kind of delicately skate around and make the, make my explanation just broad and general enough to where I can get the basic idea without exposing too much of my own personal drama, you know, 
uh, you know, it, it's like a lot of the death lyrics that were obviously directed at other people. And now we all know the stories of who Chuck was talking about, mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't want that to be the case. If I have a song that's about a certain experience that I had or an interaction I had with somebody or something that bothered me that happened in my life, I don't want that to follow the record forever and I also will, gener- you know, I'll speak in general enough terms to where it, when I sing those lyrics again, I'm not having to relive that experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I want the song to be broad enough to be about many things and be relatable to multiple people. And sometimes when that's not the case and the lyrics are too specific, I choose not to publish them. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, that's a short answer to a short answer done very longly or done uh-huh. very you know what i'm trying to say cut that yeah, out no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great answer uh, it's a it's a, it's a it's a long answer to a very you know simple uh explanation i mm-hmm. I, I could have made it a little bit more concise i guess but all so right I'll well, speaking to two academics who always like yeah. speak at length a lot longer than is needed to convey mm-hmm. a single idea, so yeah, you're mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> yeah, ju- just regularly. I gotta make. I gotta circle the airport a couple times before I land. Yeah, but no, I think, like no exaggeration. Jess regularly yells at me for writing sentences that go on too long and could be like you know <laughs> one or you know three short sentences. It's 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 something that we all suffer from. Yeah, <laughs> facts. <laughs> Well, and I'm, I have the problem with, uh, you know, where sometimes I have to like kind of process something out verbally mm-hmm. before yeah. it makes any damn sense. So I kind of have to like splatter it all against the wall before it looks like a picture. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that is totally what I just did just now. <laughs> I just was like, oh, there it is. Yeah. It's a landscape. No, it's <laughs> totally, totally sympathize. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, right. Right. 300,000 words cut it down to 100,000 for a book less you know you gotta it, the ideas come out as you as you use the language right yeah exactly right but it, it's it's a weird thing I mean it's like I totally see the irony like making this you know super emotional and you know uh thought out music and then being like you know yoink you know take the, the lyrics <laughs> and the meaning away and being like, yeah, sorry, you know, I totally get that. And I, and I, and I have wrestled with that. I joke and I tell my wife that whenever I croak, you know, when I kick the bucket, she can put all my lyrics out there because I won't have to deal with it then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but know? as you said, though, but right, like, please. sorry, you go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go ahead, please. I was going to say, like, you know, as you said, though, like people can still like kind of read into like the music, even if they can't understand the lyrics and kind of interpret the potential meaning behind it, even if that doesn't match the author's intent. Right. But isn't that kind of nice, though? Yeah, I reckon. Then you can can kind of see yourself in the music that you're listening to, and it gives you a chance to to kind of relate to it in whatever way you choose. And and I don't I I think that's kind of nice. It, going back to the story about the guy who had the pet die mm, and yeah. he was very sad and then he writes me and he's like the song that i relate to and i'm like ah oh, buddy i'm sorry it's it's about punk rock you know what a bummer you know like that's a total bummer but it's still about so, loss though right yeah so for him it's still it's, that like yeah thematic connection 
but that loss that I was experiencing seems very trivial um, in in the face of an actual death of a, of a of an animal or a loved one or you know something that was really an actual living being that was really important to you. And then here I am, like lamenting my teenage punk rock years. But you know, still, the loss so I, of I see. I, I see that. Sure, sure, totally. But I also see that, like, it's when you have like a concrete, you know, uh, explanation for a song like this is what this is about. Mm. It kind of it doesn't give you the chance to read into the song what you see in yourself, mm. and and I do think that there's some value in that. Mm. Well, I think this links kind of to our last question quite Absolutely. well, which is just. If you were to sum everything up, uh, what do you feel is the role of language and lyrics in Panopticon's music and more broadly in the uh, metal as a genre? I mean, that's, that's like a really a loaded question. Um, <laughs> but at the same it's a tough time, question to end on. Yeah. 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 It's pretty tough. Um, you, you know, I, I think that, I think that uh, language is like a vehicle um to to express yourself in the music and some people use their lyric writing as a way to uh further enhance the thematic elements of their music <clears throat> you know like think about like nile mm-hmm. you know nile's lyrics are all this like egyptian folklore and then sometimes it's in different languages and and it and and the language change as this kind of exoticness, um, you know, and, and 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 makes it seem gives it a character and a, and a flavor to it that it wouldn't have had if it was in English, you know. Or you think about all these bands, like these black metal bands, that'll have parts in Latin because the Latin sounds so much more evil, you right. know. Uh, it sounds so much, sounds so much more haunting and scary than if they had just said the same thing in English or, you know, you know, whatever language they choose. Um, so I think that the language can be used as a vehicle to express yourself and express your perspective or evoke a certain emotion, a certain mindset. Um, but ultimately you're, you know, ultimately it's another tool that you use just like a guitar or, a, you know, or drums or, or you know like in my case like you know a banjo or mandolin resonator accordion whatever other you know of the litany of instruments that i use on my records you know like Mm -hmm. um it's i'm trying to convey something and i'm using a musical instrument to do that and sometimes i'm conveying something by my use of language or i'm conveying an emotion by the way that i scream a word or if it's whispered or you know like imagine agalox the mantle if all the vocals were screamed like suicidal depressive black metal you know like the the vocals that sound like an elephant blowing its horn you know, like, ah! you know imagine if imagine if all of john's vocals on the mantle were done like silencer you know how different that record would be um and i think i think uh lyric writing and language could be, it's the exact same, you know? I don't think that it's any different at all from any other instrument. Um, it can be unimportant or it can be extremely important. Brilliant. Yeah, lovely. 
Well, yeah, thank you for being with us and spending all this time talking through your lyrics. We really appreciate the detail you've given in your responses. <laughs> Sorry if I've rambled too much. No, no, no it's, it's, it's been, been perfect. Yeah. yeah, super fascinating. Yeah. Um, before we finish up, though, we did want to ask um, where the best place is for listeners to find Panopticon's music and uh, any news about tours and things like that that might be coming up. Check your uh, local used section <laughs> of uh, that is going to be hard to link in the description. Uh, yeah. Bandcamp <laughs> is good. No, Bandcamp, uh, iTunes. Um, uh, for, you know, for digital. Uh, for records, you know, you can go to binroomrecordings.com. Um, I have a Panopticon merch store that uh, me and Becca, my wife, we run. Um, also, Season of Mist is our distributor in Europe. Um, but um, they don't typically take a lot of copies of the records, so you might be out of luck there. Um, and then as far as shows go, um, you know, that stuff gets posted on uh, Bandcamp and uh, and on Binary Recordings. Um, there's always, since I don't have social media that I run, it's kind of hard mm. for me to update anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, uh, we will be touring, uh, this autumn mm -hmm. in Europe with Grift, uh, from Sweden. And I'm really excited about them. I, I think that would be an amazing, uh, episode for you guys. If you guys talk to Eric from Grift. Grift. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is, could you, uh, could you, could you get us in touch by chance? <laughs> Absolutely. Up. He yeah. is highly, highly intelligent and, and has some very interesting lyrical influences. But yeah, we'll, we'll be touring this um, autumn with Grift in Norway, in Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and Austria. Uh, it's our first time to be back in Scandinavia since I guess maybe 2017 or something oh, like wow, that. Okay. It's, been quite, it's been quite some time since we've been over there. So we're excited for that. Um, and um, we've got a couple of American shows this year. And then 2023, we've got some pretty big plans for that as well. Um, more international gigs. Try our best to, to finally go back to Kentucky. And okay. Play in Louisville. Uh, we were supposed to play in Louisville right before the pandemic started. And um, that got canceled yeah. because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that'll be really fun to go back and, and play there finally after all these years. Is there a release date for the, the new material? The new album is getting closer and closer to being done. Um, uh, the new record has a ton of layers and elements that have not been present on other albums. I mean, there's like huge string orchestrations on it, massive string orchestrations, um, huge choirs, like 26 part choirs with multiple voices layered over and over and over again. Um, ironically, there is a, there is a, a choir that's in Latin. So. Okay. Mm, cool. And that was intentionally done to make it sound more sinister. Okay. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, uh, and so there's a, yeah, the, the record is, it's quite long. 
uh, that all Panopticon records are. Um, and it's, but it's really layered. It's really huge and cinematic. And, and every time I put a record out, I'm always convinced that everyone's going to hate it. So we'll see what's going to happen with this. Cause it definitely is a little different than the other ones have been. And but, but it's more metal. It's a lot more metal. Mm. It's more of a black metal record than Anakin into the light was, which had a lot of death metal and doom influence. Uh, so this is more of a black metal record and there's a lot of like super melodic and atmospheric parts, but there's a lot of really epic, huge arrangements. It's taken, I mean, I started tracking it in 2020. Oh, wow. It's, it's been a slow process this one. So. Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Look forward to it. Yeah. Hopefully you'll like it. If you don't, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. We really, I mean, yeah, we really appreciate it. It's uh, yeah, really enjoyable. Just, you know, uh, two random people send you an email and you agree to chat. We, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your help. I always appreciate when people do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Aaron spoke really highly of y'all. Oh, it's good to hear. We oh, had a, we had a, yeah, really enjoyed chatting with him. Um, he's really, he's a really special person, isn't he? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a that's our longest interview. We he just he just he like, was so generous with yeah. us. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Lingua Rutalica. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. Before we leave, we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. 